Hello, I am Alexandra. <laughs> I'm Alexandra, and together we are Lars Kepler. And you are listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me in the co-host seat this week is author Greg Levin. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Glad to be here, Eric. Now, your books include In Wolves Clothing, Sick to Death, The Exit Man, and uh, you have decided to ignore your first novel altogether. I mean, really, we as a society have decided to ignore <laughs> your first novel entirely and just pretend it doesn't exist, right? Pretty much. There's like seven librarians in England who love it. There's a lot of literary jokes in it. It's just... It would have worked well as a blog post more than a novel, I think. <laughs> very, very much the first novel. I tell people, you know, first novels are rarely, rarely, there are exceptions, very good. So it's best to start off with your second, third, or your fourth. I agree. Yes. I, I, I have one of those in, in a drawer that no one will ever see. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was good practice, though. So. Yeah, exactly. I, I, uh, I didn't really understand pig. I just thought, oh, I could just, I'll just be funny like I am in all my other blog posts and stuff and not write a novel. And it just doesn't work that way. Well, your books are crime novels, front and center, bad things happen, there are bad people. There's also a, a lot of dark comedy, and I think people are definitely gonna find out over the course of this episode, you are indeed a, a darkly funny person. Does that ever uh, get you into trouble at home? Like it does uh, for me? I think people are used to, they, they tune me out mostly now. I mean, I don't know how anybody, how everybody is darkly <laughs> funny. You, you, the moment you realize you're definitely going to die, you either can become super depressed or, or darkly funny. I, I chose both. That's that's a good way to go for it. I like that. Uh, so on Twitter, you share the struggles and frustrations of life as a writer with a very self-deprecating wit about it. And we do self-deprecating here on Writer Types quite a lot with our, the little clips we have of the day's guests. Uh, like I would say. Author Rio Ewers describes perfectly the feeling of being asked to co-host an episode of Writer Types. I think that makes us rise out of our seats and rejoice and punch the air and triumph. You know, it's like Rocky Balboa. <laughs> or I would say that true crime author Harold Schechter gives us his impression of what it's like to be interviewed on Writer Types. You know, I think it's kind of analogous to what first year medical students experience when they're first confronted with having to dissect a cadaver. <laughs> so, explaining a joke makes it funnier, right? <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah. Let's talk more about that, about how explaining a joke makes it funnier. Yeah. But I mean, it, you definitely seem to be uh, of the opinion that you, you, you need thick skin to get in this game of writing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there's a fair amount of hyperbole in my, in my tweets. I'm not actually that miserable or agonizing as a, as a writer. I, I find a lot of joy from it, to be honest. But yes, there are times where I'll just have a certain feeling about book marketing or writing a synopsis or just plot holes. And it's just fun to vent through a tweet and knowing that there's a lot of other people who can commiserate. But yeah, if someone took my tweets literally, they'd probably think he's not long for this world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you just take it on face value, it would seem like you get very discouraged. But it, it, there's also this undercurrent that you couldn't live without this, right? I mean, this is something that's very important to you. Exactly. That's a very way, good way to put it. I, um, I I often quote Kafka to to friends or to people. I just want to think I'm smart enough to read Kafka. And he said, a non-writing writer 
is a monster courting insanity. And it's one of my favorite quotes because, oh. yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, I can enjoy life. I can enjoy time with my wife and family, my daughter, you know, and, and do other things besides write. But if I go three, four days, like if I'm, I'm on vacation and I'm not writing, I start to get a little jittery. It's like withdrawal symptoms. <laughs> well, I would imagine that if you have the kind of characters that you write about talking to you in your head and you don't have an outlet for it, yeah, that would get a little uh, scary. Yeah. I mean, you know, people get sick of listening to you. Like I was, a, I, I talk a lot and I think in my teenage years, maybe my 20s, I realized people weren't listening. So I'm like, oh, I'll just, I'll just start writing. People can't interrupt me when I'm writing. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm a lifer. I mean, I'll be doing this till the day I, till the day I die. Well, let's do some talking then with our guests. What do you say? Yeah, that's, that's, this isn't about me or you. It's about this awesome guests. Let's do it. Well, our first guest is Tammy Uliano, a debut author of Fatal Intent, a medical thriller about an anesthesiologist who gets accused of a role in a patient's death, and she has to clear her name and find out the truth, all with the help of her Aunt Erm and some younger sidekicks. It also has uh, some undercurrents of end-of-life issues, so it's got the, a, a deeper layer. And Greg, you, you wrote a little bit about end-of-life issues in your novel, The Exit Man, but did you ever see that as like a, a third rail you didn't want to touch? It's too sensitive of a topic? No, no. I mean, uh, it's funny. I The idea popped into my head kind of as a joke, and then I realized this could actually be something. And I talked to some friends, and they were like, wow, this is people who've actually lost people to terminal illness. And they were like, I would read that in a heartbeat. Like, it sounds really interesting. Because I, uh, like all my books, I, whether it's terminal illness or, or sex trafficking, there's humor in them, but I'm not, I'm not making fun of, of the topic. I'm not making fun of people dying of terminal illness. It's just the humor comes out of people dealing with dark situations and you can't help but you know, have some comedy arise. But no, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid. I really wanted to go into that book, Fearless. And, um, and here I am talking about my book when we're supposed to be talking about the guests. It's the privilege of being a co-host, Greg. Yeah, thank you. We got, we got to move some paper here. <laughs> Tammy, thank you for joining us on Writer Types. Uh, I want to talk about your character, Kate Downey, in Fatal Intent. And like Kate, uh, you are a practicing anesthesiologist, which I'm very proud that both I just pronounced that properly. And when I typed that, I spelled it right the first time. Can I get a little credit Good for that? Good job. Of course. I still type it wrong. <laughs> well, when you are at work, you literally have a patient's life in your hands when you put them under. If you turn the dial a little too far one direction or the other, things could go bad. I mean, do you think your patients would be at all dismayed to learn <laughs> that you dream up and write down scenes of people dying? I have wondered about that, actually. I, um, I'm in a, a blog group called Writers Who Kill, and they wanted me to have a picture of me with a syringe or something. And I said, you know, I really don't think that would be good for my career. But right, the careers are completely different, so hopefully not. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I don't know how I would feel if, if you're just about to go under and be like, oh, by the way, and Tammy's doing a little research right now. <laughs> so in Fatal Intent, Kate quickly, she you know, she goes from medical professional to investigator. 
is there anything in Kate's life that makes her a, a like a really good investigator, or was it more fun for you to write her struggles? She, you know, anesthesia is is very. Um, it's actually quite different from most other fields of medicine in that we are faced with a patient who's giving us some signs and we have to investigate those signs and we have ideas of what might be wrong and ways to get to the problem. And so our careers are very much investigational, investigatory. And so so it sort of fits with her background. And then, you know, based on what's going on in her life, she's, I think, reasonably compelled to to pursue this because she really wants her career to not end because it's kind of all that's left in her life at this point. Um, but yeah, it's kind of fun writing an amateur sleuth because I know a lot about anesthesia, but I don't know a lot about the police that I haven't learned from television and I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah, right. Right. The, flaw, uh, the flawed protagonist is always, uh, is always welcome. Yeah, I think I, we, we always have uh, more fun, or at least I, I, I know I can make a character more real if they're a little bit dumb, because that's uh, <laughs> no research required, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then in this book, you've also surrounded Kate with a, a cast of rather eccentric helpers. Coming up with a main character is really only half the battle, isn't it? Right, absolutely. And uh, I tried to make sure she had somebody for a little bit of comic relief and... I used the medical student, Jen, as an opportunity to explain medical stuff because Kate wouldn't be thinking in, you know, more sophomoric terms about her, uh, what she does and how she's doing it. And so using a medical student to explain it, that was a, a nice device. I actually use it in my real job, too, when I'm trying to explain something to a resident and I don't want the patient to realize that he's learning, then I'll grab a medical student and pretend like I'm actually talking to them when, when I'm actually talking to the resident. Oh, that's clever. <laughs> now yeah. you're going to pick up the orange needle. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Now, uh, Timmy, you're also a professor and have been teaching medical students for a while. Are there any plans to teach a writing course in there now as well? That would actually be very fun. I've done a little bit of teaching of teaching writers how to get the medical facts right. But I, I would enjoy that. I, I do like to teach. So, so yeah, I would like to continue to pursue that. I'm not ready to quit teaching medicine. But yeah, I'd like to, I think I'd enjoy that. It's such an interesting field, so different from science, where I can teach people sort of the right way to do things. And in writing, there's, there's no right way. There's, there's a lot of ways. But um, talking about things I've learned, I think, is useful. I've learned a lot from authors who are further along in their careers than I. You make an interesting point there. I mean, the the sort of two sides of the brain between the science and, and the creative is, uh, it's, it's an interesting blend for any anybody to have. I mean, it's is the writing filling a void in your life or are you able to use some of the same skills that you have in, in your medical work? Do, do they come into play when you're writing? Does it help you be, I don't know, more organized, more thoughtful about certain things? Um, I think it's pros and cons. I think there's plenty of times where the skills I learned in time management and, and uh, finishing projects, and I did a lot of technical writing in my, in my day job, um, and those help, but they also hurt because, you know, in a technical paper, you're not going to spend a lot of time describing the lab that you're working in with the lovely <laughs> white walls and the, and the beakers. But yeah, it's definitely using different sides of the brain. But then the creative side has been helpful to me in my teaching 
being more of a storyteller, um, I think the residents learn better when I when I couch everything in a story of when I took care of a patient with this or that disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it sticks better that way. Oh, absolutely! I, I can totally see that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm just this just popped into my head. Do, do you make it a point to let your patients know that you are you write fiction, or are you more like I don't want to scare them? <laughs> I don't bring it up, but generally, you know, this is my debut. And so most people at the hospital know about it. And I'm pretty good friends with most of the people I work with. So inevitably, somebody will bring it up in the operating room. Often the patient's already asleep. So I am (laughs) not having to explain that away. Well, now, are doctors the biggest consumers of medical thrillers? Or is that sort of a a busman's holiday? And and, and you don't want to read about that when you get off work? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I actually have no idea whether physicians read medical thrillers. I like to read medical thrillers as long as they're written by people who know what they're talking about. But uh-huh. I will quickly <laughs> stop reading when I realize that they're getting the facts wrong. And I think that's probably true of policemen reading police procedurals. If it's if it's wrong, it's just not fun to read. That's why I write about total lowlifes and losers, because I've got a lot of experience with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, in-person book events are... are they're not really happening yet. Do you get to celebrate your debut at all? Or, and how so? My husband was just asking me that. And I um, I actually don't know. You're right. There's no in-person event. Um, I'm going to do a launch event with a bookstore down in Miami, but we're going to do it a week later. Um, just an online mm-hmm. Zoom thing where I talk to another writer. Um, my publisher is doing a little Facebook Live thing, which I don't even know what that is, but apparently I'll be... Um, talking to people on Facebook, but yeah, there's it's, uh, it's going to be a little bit anticlimactic compared to what I maybe envisioned from my friends who've had a debut novel. But since I'm a little bit of an introvert, I'm not horribly disappointed that I have an excuse not to sit somewhere and hope people walk by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah the, the real disappointment uh, is is the in person events sometimes where you show up and you realize that it's not like it is in the movies or or the, that crushing realization that you are in fact not Stephen King and they're right. not lining up around the block. <laughs> right. I've, I've done a reading, not a, not a, not for a new novel, but for an older novel. I've done a reading for the four people and I was related to two of them. So <laughs> I think you'll, I think you'll, it can be from what I've read about this book and your background, I think you're going to have, you have quite a, quite a nice little following. Oh, that would be wonderful. I just hope people get, the point and uh, and follow through with uh, getting their own living wills and realizing they don't want to end up putting their family in that kind of position. Yeah, yeah, you do. Uh, you you don't shy away from uh, a rather hot button topic potentially of sort of these end of life decisions. Uh, I mean, this book sort of has a, a second layer to it beyond the thrills, doesn't it? I hope so. That was the intent. <laughs> I um, I love to read anything, but my goal was to write something that that might stick with people a little bit longer, even if they don't necessarily have the characters stuck in their mind, but the whole concept of um, the, uh, the other books I've written that have not yet been published similarly have a, a sort of overarching ethical dilemma sort of thing. And, and what I find fun is trying to present the dilemma in reasonable ways from all different sides without ever really preaching the answer, because I don't have the answer, but just sort of prompting discussion of, of what do you think ought to happen? The most important question for today is, I tweaked my back skiing the other day, and is there, are there any household products that I could like put together, concoct, to make something that would make the pain go away without any side effects? 
<laughs> when you figure it out, let me know. We'll start a company. <laughs> I think I think it's called whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that has some side effects. <laughs> Oh well, Tammy, uh, we thank you for uh, for your cheap medical advice. Uh, <laughs> you get what you pay for. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and congratulations on on Fatal Intent, and we look forward to uh, more of Kate Downey's adventures. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's yeah. very exciting. I appreciate the time. All right, next up is Rio Ewers, author of the new novel Lola on Fire. And Rio is a writer of other thrillers, also some horror and some comic book work. He did the comic adaptation of Sleeping Beauties by uh, some up and comers named Stephen and Owen King. That's not a bad gig. <laughs> Lola on Fire is a, a gopher-broke action story about a woman with a particular set of skills and a young man with little to no skill who gets in way over his head trying to protect his little sister. It's full throttle the whole way, and I really dug it. So, Greg, do you ever go through in rewrites and, and revisions? Do you ever go through and like intentionally pace up the writing and maybe start trimming some stuff and pulling things out to get it to a pace that really, uh, really moves? Yeah, definitely I do. I do it more. I'm kind of, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm very much an edit. Like I'll write and then the next day I'll edit what I wrote and then start the next thing. I don't read till the end, but yeah, I, I do. When I realized I was, shoot, I was gonna get a little bit too, um, a little bit too literary, maybe a little too inside the character's head, and I'm like, okay, this was interesting to me. I, I, I definitely have to kill my darlings, and more often than not, I'll, I'll get into like a bit of a poetic bent, and I'm like, let's, uh, something has to explode, or a gun's got to be pulled, or someone's got to get jacked here soon. If I'm expecting readers to, to keep up, you know, I'm not, I'm not Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> You never know. Maybe you you are more than you think. You, you got to leave it on the page so we can decide. Yeah, I think I would have to do a lot more heroin. I mean, I would have to do heroin. (laughs) (laughs) Rio, Lola on Fire was a wild ride. And I'm going to tell you the moment that I knew when I was committed to this book. It was only a few pages in when I read the line, then Jimmy came at her with a flamethrower. So... (laughs) Like, okay, now this is my kind of book right now. <laughs> so, I mean, you really set out to write a go-for-broke action thriller, right? Absolutely, yeah. This was uh, intended from the very beginning to be um, high-octane, fun as hell, balls to the wall, action all the way, and not letting up on the gas. Um, that was my intention. Obviously, you, you can't sustain that over 400 pages. You know, you need to be able to take a step back and breathe. So, you know, you, there is that balance, you know, allowing the, the reader a chance to catch their breath and also providing enough action to keep the pages turning. So that was a bit of a challenge. But but really, it was all about, you know, really wanting to take that action movie formula that we see, uh, you know, in cinema screens and movies like John Wick and Kill Bill and seeing if I could translate that into a novel. Well, I'm I'm jealous because uh, my last two published books have been written with that very same intention, and then I was immediately told, you know, by agents like, "Oh, no one's publishing this kind of stuff." So when I got my hands on this, I was like, "Okay, there's hope." <laughs> yeah. I tell you, it's, yeah. it's the way of it. You know, you you 
you never can tell what the publishers are looking for. You've just got to, you know, for me, this was a book that I, I wanted to write because it was the kind of book that I wanted to read. So I, I wrote this primarily with me in mind, not with really any publishers in mind or editors or whatever. Obviously, I want to get the book published. I want it to sell and I want it to do well. But if I have a fun time writing this, then all was not lost. That's all you can hope oh, yeah. for. Amen. That whole thing leads into my question is, you know, cinematic is probably one of the most used terms in describing thrillers, but I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and use it anyway. Now, do, do you see a difference in, in in movie style plotting versus novel style plotting? Um, well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, there are certain rules that apply to novel writing that, that don't apply to movies. M- movies like John Wick, they're so far beyond the, the bounds of possibility. You know, anybody really in, in real life who tries to sort of storm into a nightclub against 50, 60 guys and he's only armed with, you know, 145, he's going to get shot and killed pretty quickly. You know, that's... <laughs> So when we see characters like John Wick, it, it awakens that badass within all of us. Yeah. There's not really the the need to ground movies in reality that there is within a book. There has to be that thread, at least a thread, one foot in reality's door to keep the reader interested and invested. They can roll their eyes once, they might roll their eyes twice, but you know, when you get to the third time when they, they get to a point they're like, oh, that just wouldn't happen. You know, I think yeah. the book's going to snap closed more often than not. And it's gone and you'll never get them back at that point. Well, I think the the character that I think grounds it, uh, for me anyway, was Brody. And I, because he had that sort of that great character trait that, that I love when I read of someone who was squeezed and sort of caught in a riptide that he can't swim against. And it, it, he also he also kind of doesn't really fully know what's going on at any given moment. I don't know. I'm not sure if he could himself sustain a full novel, like you say, of the intensity, but then you bring Lola in. And, and I think that's where the twists and, and the, the dizzying part comes. I mean, obviously you're a fan of these sort of densely plotted stories that have a lot of different threads going at the same time. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brody, in fact, was, um, you know, when I think about all of the inspirations for this book, most of them are, you know, TV and movie based. And Brody, in fact, you know, a lot of the inspiration for him came from Jesse from Breaking Bad. Oh. Yeah. And I, I was trying to get that feel of someone who's young, who's just got in over his head, but who, who's generally a good kid. You know, he means well. He, he, he finds himself in a situation that, that seems to have no logical exit certainly no safe exit and he and he kind of has to you know he has to ride this out with the added complication of course of, of looking up his his sister who herself you know brings her own dynamism and strength to this book i think molly is a favorite amongst you know many of the readers for good reason now your early fiction rio it, it features a lot of horror and and speculative fiction yeah uh, but your latest novels are thrillers i mean i i love the shift uh is there a reason behind this or is it just kind of the way it worked out i always wanted to get into thrillers more like horror i like horror fiction and i've enjoyed writing uh horror short fiction particularly but with the novels i always wanted it it to be sort of to, to speak to a broader audience um which isn't to say that horror doesn't have a you know a massive audience we all we all know it it does there's a reason you know stephen king is you know, one of the the richest, most well-known authors in the world. But yeah, so I really wanted to break into thrillers and I kind of did it gently. 
the two books that that go before Lola on Fire, um, The Forgotten Girl and Halcyon, they're sort of more paranormal thrillers, I guess you could call them. But they were marketed, and they were published by St. Martin's Press, and they were marketed in the US as thrillers. It says it right on the cover, The Forgotten Girl, a thriller. But in the UK, they were marketed more as horror stories. I knew even then that I wanted to just write a straight thriller. That was kind of where my, I felt that my calling was. Well, you nailed it with Lola. I, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Now, I can see uh, behind you a guitar there, and that always intrigues me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and and I've, I've heard, is this true? You used to be a singer in a heavy metal band? Well, you've done some research on me. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I also, I've, I have my history. I, I was in the late 90s. I was in a, I don't know, alternative, like a post-punk. We were very loud. I did a lot of screaming. We, we right. toured around. Oh, uh, when, when you're uh, gearing up to write this heavy action in Lola, are, do you psych yourself up and you drop the needle on some Slayer to get yourself in the mood? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, not usually when I'm writing, but, um, you know, when, when I'm, you know, I'll go for a run or something like that, and then I'll just jam out the the, the the heavy tracks, and that really does help put me in the mindset, right? As I get older, I'm sort of leaving some of those some of those heavy metal roots behind. Yeah. Every now and again, you know, rain and blood, you got to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> all I heard, you were starting a band. That's all I heard. You guys are starting a band, and it's gonna be called Rio Beatner. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. I, yeah, I, I, two guitars, two two vocalists. That's all we need, right? <laughs> Absolutely, let's do. It. Amid all the, the bullets and the bloodshed in Lola on fire, there's a there's a real heart. There's some real meaningful relationships. Now, do you find it hard to keep that balance when there's so much going on, chaos going on all around the characters? That is a great question. Um, honestly, that's the stuff that comes more naturally to me. The emotional stuff, the, the, the investment in character. You know, if anything, I feel that my strength is in characterization. And it's something that I work very hard on. And uh, it's always at the forefront of my mind whenever I go into a new novel. How can I make these characters interesting? How can I make the reader care about these characters? What kind of backstories do I have to give them to make them feel as real as possible? So really with this, it was it was more, you know, the other way around. It was trying to, to you know, I had these characters that, that, I, that really intrigued me and that I knew I could make breathe on the page. But it was how I could marry those characters with with the action and the blood and the guns and the flamethrowers, right? <laughs> it, was, it was really bringing that other stuff in in a way that didn't detract from the realness of of who these people are. It's John Wick's dog all over again. It's like if it John is. Wick was just shooting people for, but what's the core of it? Well, they did something terrible to his dog, and that's that's enough for me to be emotionally invested, right? Absolutely, that was a stroke of humor. I always say I love char- I love characters I wouldn't be caught dead with but can't stop rooting for. Right. That's the kind of character's writing, and I love it. Yeah, it's definitely, I think that's a theme throughout all of my fiction is, you know, it's that unsung hero. You know, Lola, she's badass in this book, and she can, she'll just go out and she'll tear it up. And I love that, and I love, you know, being able to step into her shoes and, and see through her eyes and, 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 and kick ass the way she could kick ass. But, you know... There's also something to be said, I think, for, for the characters that we can relate more to. 
you know, and then we see them rising to the occasion, you know, someone who's, uh, you know, thrown into the deep end and who really has to dig deep to find the very best of themselves and, and win the day like any other badass, like any other superhero. I think we've, right. all, we've all got that inside us somewhere, you know, and when we see characters like, you know, Brody and Molly stepping up, I think that makes us rise out of our seats and rejoice and punch the air and triumph. You know, it's like Rocky Balboa. Yeah. And that we love that. We love that when the hero steps up and comes through, you know, with the unsung hero yeah. makes his or her mark. For sure. All right. Well, Rio, uh, we appreciate uh, you joining us today and uh, I'll see you at band practice, I guess. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, man. <laughs> Finally, we have true crime author Harold Schechter, whose newest deep dive into the criminal mind is called Maniac, and it's about a bombing at a school nearly 100 years ago and the seemingly normal man who did it. So, Greg, if we asked your family, would they think that you are capable of cracking and going nuts one day? That's a good question. Um, my wife always jokes, like, you know, if I ever, my wife's saying this, she said, tells friends if I ever turn up dead or, you know, don't even like question it, just that Greg did it. <laughs> but no, I, I think, honestly, I think crime writers, are, we're probably, the because we have this outlet, and we're getting it all out of our system, like almost on a daily basis. I think we're probably the least likely to, to crack. How about you? How about you? Am I allowed to turn it around? Oh no, no one in my life would be surprised if 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 I cracked one day. They would all they would be like, "Oh, the signs were all there." <laughs> Am I cracking right now? Yeah, we, we we might be in the middle of a breakdown. We just don't realize it. I might not be talking to you right now. This could all be happening in my life. <laughs> well, Harold, to set about writing a whole book about something that happened almost a hundred years ago. I mean, you have to be really committed to that story. Mm -hmm. When did you first come across this story that's at the heart of Maniac? You know, I've always been interested in crimes that were uh, media sensations in their day, but that have been faded into obscurity. And I wrote a whole book years ago called Psycho USA, Famous American Murderers You Never Heard Of. So it was a collection, you know, of cases going back to the 1800s. You know, these were cases that generated as much publicity as something like the OJ case in our time. Wow. And, you know, people have totally forgotten about them. And, and related to that, you know, I've always been curious why some crimes, Lizzie Borden or Leopold and Loeb, you know, enter into cultural mythology. And again, there are these other equally heinous murders sometimes even more heinous murders that are completely forgotten. So uh, in researching my book on Psycho, my book Psycho USA, one of the cases I came across was the Bath School Massacre of 1927. Right. So, um, yeah, so the Bath School Disaster is one of those. Wow, it's a crazy story. Yeah. Yep. Now, now, Maniac, you know, this story reminds us that mass killings and tragedies like this aren't aren't as much a product of the modern age as we might, as, as we might think. Now, yeah. are there parallels to any of today's mass killings we can see from this case? Well, I mean, the, you know, the case that it uh, prefigures most closely is the um, 
Oklahoma City bombing carried out by Timothy Mm -hmm. McVeigh. You you know, the Bath School Master, which I came to believe, and I say this in the book, was probably the paramount crime of the 20th century, even though very few people outside of Michigan remember it. But, you know, it was the worst act of domestic terrorism uh, before uh, McVeigh uh, bombed that federal building in Oklahoma City, uh, and also the worst school massacre, and also the first, possibly the only, as far as I know, suicide car bombing. Oh, wow. So, you know, it combined all of these elements which foreshadowed some of the horrors of uh, the contemporary world, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I think it's kind of faded into obscurity, because one of the points I make in the book is that each era seems to have a kind of signature crime that is a type of crime that the public becomes obsessed with for various reasons. You know, I think because the crime embodies uh, a particular set of anxieties that are current at the culture at that moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, I mean, in a way, you know, I say uh, the Baskell Massacre was a horror ahead of its time. Hmm. Um, you know, it didn't really resonate so much with the public. It just seems so anomalous. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, and Andrew Kehoe, the perpetrator of this, he's, he's that classic, I never saw it coming kind of guy. I mean, he's kind, he's well-respected, he's educated. You know, while you were finding out more about him, did you get any insight about what makes a man crack like that? You know, there, there are some superficial answers. I mean, ultimately, you know, we don't know enough about his background uh, to be able to, uh, you know, say anything definitive about his psychology. You know, the thing about writing about notorious murderers is that until they become notorious murderers, they're completely obscure people. (laughs) Often they're total non-entities. So, you know, you don't have a lot of documentary evidence about their upbringing, their background. You know, somebody, something in Kehoe's, I would assume, background, and you know, made him very susceptible to a kind of paranoia. Uh, you know, he be, he became classic, what some criminologists call injustice collector. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of mass murders start to feel that the world is mistreating them in all these horrible ways, and they're going to take revenge on the world. And uh, you know, Kehoe certainly fits into that kind of profile. Now, the, the book's extremely gripping, I mean, and I, as a fiction, a crime fiction writer, I'm, I think about how much time I put into making stuff up to really grab readers, and I'm like, look, at, I, I read books like yours, especially Maniac, and I'm, should us fiction writers just, like, hang it up and, don't, and all just start writing true crime? <laughs> well, uh, no, short answer. You know, I mean, I was a... Um, uh, a lot of people are not aware of this. I was a professor of American literature for 42 years. So, um, no, I don't think people should stop writing fiction. You know, for me, obviously fiction can do all kinds of things that nonfiction can't. You know, if you were writing a novel about this, you, you would have the license uh, to go into Kehoe's mind, for example, uh, mm. much more than I, you know, felt I was entitled to do. When I read a true crime book, I'm always a little put off uh, if there's too much embellishment or too much speculation. Right. I just read one the other day, you know, and every other sentence was like, well, this must have happened or very likely so-and-so did this when they 
you know, that stuff always brings me up short and I try to avoid that. Yeah. So, I mean, my challenge as a writer is to take all this dry, dusty documentary material, you know, and turn it into a compelling narrative um, without, again, inventing or embellishing or whatever. So. Well, over the course of your many true crime novels, you've written about serial killers, cannibals, poisoners. I mean, how do you get out of bed in the morning and not fear that you're going to be killed the minute you walk out the door? Yeah. Well, I always felt that even before I became a writer. <laughs> but, um, but no, you know, when I first started writing true crime, you know, my first two books were a book about Ed Gein, a book called Deviant. And then uh, when I was writing that book, I was in touch with Robert Block, who wrote the novel Psycho. Oh. And, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, why do you think people are so fascinated by Ed Gein? And he said, because they've forgotten about Albert Fish. Oh. Um, and very few people, and I had never heard of Fish. So I started researching that book. And that book was very disturbing for me to write, partly, well, largely because, you know, the stuff was so unspeakably nightmarish that I was dealing with. Yeah. But what I often tell people uh, you know, I think it's kind of analogous to what first-year medical students experience when they're first confronted with having to dissect a cadaver. Uh-huh. Uh, it's incredibly disturbing. And then after a few weeks, they're kind of eating their sandwiches while they're doing it. <laughs> you know, you do become a little inured to it. And also, you know, there was a time when it was very incredibly unnerving to me to discover the kinds of things you know, that these some of these killers were doing and capable of doing. You know, by this point, nothing surprises me anymore. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you seem to prefer writing about killers from, from deep in the past. And mm-hmm. does that yes. give you does that give you a little distance and make it less scary? Or is your job do you feel your job is to bring it into the here and now? Well the latter. I mean it doesn't make it less scary since, you know, some of the criminals that I've written about, uh, like fish, were incredibly scary. There, I, I think part of the reason that I was always attracted to historical true crime is that, you know, I love doing research. I, I became an academic, you know, wrote my PhD. You know, I just love spending time well back then um, in library stacks and digging through old things and microfilming Uh, newspapers. I mean, you know, the research is a very, very gratifying part of it for me. Well, Harold, uh, we thank you for joining us today and for your time. And I'm going to go crawl under my bed now and not come out. (laughs) That's always a good idea. The world is a frightening place. Thank you for showing me how scary it can be. I I get scared just reading his list of titles. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have a hook. You got to grab them. All right, there it is. Another episode down. Greg, well done, sir. Thank you for joining me today. Now, uh, a guest host is only as good as the host. And uh, I really do appreciate it, uh, Eric. This was a lot of fun. And the guests were awesome. Well, if you were to suggest one of your titles for our listeners to start with, do you have one that you usually steer people toward? I, lo- I always like, a lot of writers think this way, is your, your latest book is your best writing. So I, I usually like to steer people to, towards my latest book. So that would be In Wool's Clothing. But with the caveat uh, that it's about, you know, the topic is a, no, a non-starter for some people, even though it's not a very graphic book at all. It, it does just deal with a man who helps rescue victims of, of sex trafficking, child sex trafficking. So I then say, then start at the beginning. You know, the exit man 
is the one that got optioned. It got optioned by HBO. HBO didn't re-option it. Miraculously, Showtime optioned it. It doesn't happen very often. So that I generally I can get people that kind of piques people in, people's interest. Like, oh, it must not be too horrible. If Hollywood liked it, and I'm like, Hollywood likes a lot of horrible things, but thank you. <laughs> nothing against my middle book. Nothing against my middle child. Sick to death. Well, you you, you would do well to, to start at, at any of those places. I say so. That's that's my endorsement thank for, for any one of those titles. Much appreciated. Well, my latest is called Two in the Head, and that's out now. Brilliant. Oh, thank you. Yes, of course. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I forgot to pause to let you <laughs> praise me and my work. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yes, that's that is the job of the co-host. <laughs> try to try to sell my books. Well, you can find Writer Types on Twitter at Writer Types, and you can find back episodes at WriterTypesPodcast.com. Greg, thanks so much for joining me today, and I want you to keep up the tough love on Twitter for the new writers out there. They need to know it's not all champagne and limos. You can count on me, sir. And thank you so much again, Eric.